Letter Seven, Part One of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird. Part One of Letter Seven. Estes Park, Colorado, October. As this account of the ascent of Long's Peak could not be written at the time, I am much disinclined to write it, especially as no sort of description within my powers could enable another to realize the glorious sublimity, the majestic solitude, and the unspeakable awfulness and fascination of the scenes in which I spent Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Long's Peak, 14,700 feet high, blocks up one end of Estes Park, and dwarfs all the surrounding mountains. From it on this side rise Snowborn, the bright St. Vrain, and the big and little Thompson. By sunlight or moonlight, its splintered gray crest is the one object which, in spite of Wapiti and Bighorn, Skunk and Grizzly, unfailingly arrest the eyes. From it come all storms of snow and wind, and the forked lightnings play round its head like a glory. It is one of the noblest of mountains, but in one's imagination it grows to be much more than a mountain. It becomes invested with a personality. In its caverns and abysses one comes to fancy that it generates and chains the strong winds, to let them loose in its fury. The thunder becomes its voice, and the lightnings do it homage. Other summits blush under the morning kiss of the sun, and turn pale the next moment but it detains the first sunlight, and holds it round its head for an hour at least, till it pleases to change from rosy red to deep blue, and the sunset, as if spellbound, lingers latest on its crest. The soft winds which hardly rustle the pine-needles down here are raging rudely up there round its motionless summit. The mark of fire is upon it, and though it has passed into a grim repose, it tells of fire and upheaval as truly— though not as eloquently as the living volcanoes of Hawaii. Here, under its shadow, one learns how naturally nature-worship, and the propitiation of the forces of nature, arose in minds which had no better light. Long's Peak, the American Matterhorn, as some call it, was ascended five years ago for the first time. I thought I should like to attempt it, but up to Monday, when Evans left for Denver— cold water was thrown upon the project. It was too late in the season, the winds were likely to be strong, and so forth. But just before leaving, Evans said that the weather was looking more settled, and if I did not get farther than the timber line, it would be worth going. Soon after he left, Mountain Jen came in, and said he would go up as guide, and the two youths who rode here with me from Longmount and I caught at the proposal. Mrs. Edwards at once baked bread for three days. Steaks were cut from the steer, which hangs up conveniently, and tea, sugar, and butter were benevolently added. Our picnic was not to be a luxurious or well-founded one, for in order to avoid the expense of a pack-mule, we limited our luggage to what our saddle-horses could carry. Behind my saddle I carried three pair of camping-blankets and a quilt, which reached to my shoulders. My own boots were so much worn that it was painful to walk, even about the park in them, 
so Evans had lent me a pair of his hunting-boots, which hung to the horn of my saddle. The horses of the two young men were equally loaded, for we had to prepare for many degrees of frost. Jim was a shocking figure. He had on an old pair of high boots, with a baggy pair of old trousers made of deer-hide, held on by an old scarf tucked into them, a leather shirt with three or four ragged unbuttoned waistcoats over it, an old smashed wide-awake from under which his tawny, neglected ringlets hung, and with his one eye, his one long spur, his knife in his belt, his revolver in his waistcoat pocket, his saddle covered with an old beaver-skin from which the paws hung down, his camping-blankets behind him, his rifle laid across the saddle in front of him, and his axe, canteen, and other gear hanging to the horn, he was as awful-looking a ruffian as one could see. By way of contrast, he rode a small Arab mare, of exquisite beauty, skittish, high-spirited, gentle, but altogether too light for him, and he fretted her incessantly to make her display herself. Heavily loaded as all our horses were, Jim started over the half-mile of level grass at a hard gallop, and then, throwing his mare on her haunches, pulled up alongside of me, and with a grace of manner which soon made me forget his appearance, entered into a conversation which lasted for more than three hours, in spite of the manifold checks of fording streams, single file, abrupt descents and descents, and other incidents of mountain travel. The ride was one series of glories and surprises, of park and glade, of lake and stream, of mountains on mountains, culminating in the rent pinnacles of Long's Peak, which looked yet grander and ghastlier, as we crossed an attendant mountain eleven thousand feet high. The slanting sun added fresh beauty every hour. There were dark pines against a lemon sky, gray peaks reddening and etherealizing, gorges of deep and infinite blue, floods of golden glory pouring through canyons of enormous depth, an atmosphere of absolute purity, an occasional foreground of cottonwood and aspen flaunting in red and gold to intensify the blue gloom of the pines, the trickle and murmur of streams fringed with icicles, the strange sow of gust moving among the pine-tops, sights and sounds not of the lower earth, but of the solitary, beast-haunted, frozen upper altitudes. From the dry, buff grass of Estes Park, we turned off up a trail on the side of a pine-hung gorge, up a steep pine-clothed hill, down to a small valley, rich in fine, sun-cured hay about eighteen inches high, and enclosed by high mountains, whose deepest hollow contains a lily-covered lake, fitly named the Lake of the Lilies. Ah, how magical its beauty was, as it slept in silence, while there the dark pines were mirrored motionless in its pale gold, and here the great white lily-cups and dark green leaves rested on amethyst-colored water. From this we ascended into the purple gloom of great pine forest, which clothed the skirts of the mountains up to a height of about eleven thousand feet, and from their chill and solitary depths we had glimpses of golden atmosphere and rose-lit summits, not of the land very far off, but of the land nearer now in all its grandeur, gaining in sublimity by nearness, glimpses, too, through a broken vista of purple gorges, of the illimitable plains lying idealized in the late sunlight, their baked brown expanse transfigured into the likeness of a sunset sea, 
rolling infinitely in waves of misty gold. We rode upwards through the gloom on a steep trail blazed through the forest, all my intellect concentrated on avoiding being dragged off my horse by impending branches, or having the blankets badly torn, as those of my companions were, by sharp dead limbs, between which there were hardly room to pass. The horses breathless, and requiring to stop every few yards, though their riders, except myself, were afoot. The gloom of the dense, ancient, silent forest is to me awe-inspiring. On such an evening it is soundless, except for the branches creaking in the soft wind, the frequent snap of decayed timber, and a murmur in the pine-tops, as of a not-distant waterfall, all tending to produce eeriness and a sadness hardly akin to pain. There no lumberer's axe has ever rung. The trees die when they have attained their prime, and stand there, dead and bare, till fierce mountain-winds lay them prostrate. The pines grew smaller and more sparse as we ascended, and the last stragglers wore a tortured, warring look. The timber-line was passed, but yet a little higher a slope of mountain-meadow dipped to the southwest towards a bright stream trickling under ice and icicles, and there a grove of the beautiful silver spruce marked our camping-ground. The trees were in miniature, but so exquisitely arranged that one might well ask what artist hand had planted them, scattering them here, clumping them there, and training their slim spires towards heaven. Hereafter, when I call upon memories of the glorious, the view from this camping-ground will come up. Looking east, gorges open to the distant plains, then fading into purple-gray. Mountains with pine-clothed skirts rose in ranges, or solitary, uplifted their gray summits, while close behind, but nearly three thousand feet above us, towered the bald white crest of Long's Peak, its huge precipices red with the light of a sun long lost to our eyes. Close to us, in the cavern side of the peak, was snow that, owing to its position, is eternal. Soon the afterglow came on, and before it faded a big half-moon hung out of the heavens, shining through the silver-blue foliage of the pines on the frigid background of snow, and turning the whole into fairyland. The photo, which accompanies this letter, is by a courageous Denver artist who attempted the ascent just before I arrived, but, after camping out at the timber-line for a week, was foiled by the perpetual storms, and was driven down again, leaving some very valuable apparatus about three thousand feet from the summit. Unsaddling and picketing the horses securely, making the beds of pine shoots, and dragging up logs for fuel, warmed us all. Jim built up a great fire, and before long we were all sitting around it at supper. It didn't matter much that we had to drink our tea out of the battered meat tins in which it was boiled, and eat strips of beef, reeking with pine smoke, without plates or forks. Treat Jim as a gentleman, and you'll find him one, I had been told. And though his manner was certainly bolder and freer than that of gentlemen generally, no imaginary fault could be found. He was very agreeable as a man of culture, as well as a child of nature. The desperado was altogether out of sight. He was very courteous, and even kind to me, which was fortunate, as the young men had little idea of showing even ordinary civilities. 
That night I made the acquaintance of his dog Ring, said to be the best hunting dog in Colorado, with the body and legs of a collie, but a head approaching that of a mastiff, a noble face with a wistful human expression, and the most truthful eyes I ever saw in an animal. His master loves him, if he loves anything, but in his savage moods ill-treats him. Ring's devotion never swerves, and his truthful eyes are rarely taken off of his master's face. He is almost human in his intelligence, and unless he is told to do so, he never takes notice of any one but Jim. In a tone, as if speaking to a human being, his master, pointing to me, said, Ring, go to that lady, and don't leave her again to-night. Ring at once came to me, looking into my face, laid his head on my shoulder, and then lay down beside me with his head on my lap, but never taking his eyes from Jim's face. The long shadows of the pines lay upon the frosted grass, and Aurora leaped fitfully, and the moonlight, though intensely bright, was pale beside the red leaping flames of our pine logs, and their red glow on our gear, ourselves, and Ring's truthful face. One of the young men sang a Latin student's song, and two negro melodies. The other, Sweet Spirit, Hear My Prayer. Jim sang one of Moore's melodies in a singular falsetto, and altogether sang The Star-Spangled Banner and The Red, White, and Blue. Then Jim recited a very clever poem of his own composition, and told some fearful Indian stories. A group of small silver spruces away from the fire was my sleeping place. The artist who had been up there had so woven and interlaced their lower branches as to form a bower, affording at once shelter from the wind and a most agreeable privacy. It was thickly strewn with young pine shoots, and these, when covered with a blanket, with an inverted saddle for a pillow, made a luxurious bed. The mercury, at 9 p.m., was twelve degrees below the freezing point. Jim, after a last look at the horses, made a huge fire, and stretched himself out beside it. But Ring lay at my back to keep me warm. I could not sleep, but the night passed rapidly. I was anxious about the ascent, for gusts of ominous sounds swept through the pines at intervals. Then wild animals howled, and Ring was perturbed in spirit about them. Then it was strange to see the notorious desperado, a red-handed man, sleeping as quietly as innocent sleeps. But above all, it was exciting to lie there, with no better shelter than a bower of pines, on a mountain eleven thousand feet high in the very heart of the rocky range, under twelve degrees of frost, hearing sounds of wolves, with shivering stars looking through the fragrant canopy, with arrowy pines for bedpost, and for a night-lamp, the red flames of a camp-fire. Day dawned long before the sun rose, pure and lemon-colored. The rest were looking for the horses, when one of the students came running to tell me that I must come farther down the slope, for Jim said he had never seen such a sunrise. From the chill, gray peak above, from the everlasting snows, from the silvered pines, down through mountain ranges with their depths of Tyrian purple, we looked to where the plains lay cold, in blue-gray, like a morning sea against a far horizon. Suddenly, as a dazzling streak at first, but enlarging rapidly into a dazzling sphere, the sun wheeled above the gray line, 
a light and glory as when it was first created. Jim involuntarily and reverently uncovered his head and exclaimed, I believe there is a God. I felt as if, Parsi-like, I must worship. The gray of the plains changed to purple. The sky was all one rose-red flush, on which vermilion cloud-streaks rested. The ghastly peaks gleamed like rubies. The earth and heavens were new-created. Surely the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. For a full hour those plains simulated the ocean, down to whose limitless expanse of purple, cliff, rocks, and promontories swept down. By seven we had finished breakfast, and passed into the ghastlier solitudes above, I riding as far as what, rightly or wrongly, are called the lava-beds, an expanse of large and small boulders, with snow in their crevices. It was very cold. Some water which we crossed was frozen hard enough to bear the horse. Jim had advised me against taking any wraps, and my thin Hawaiian riding-dress, only fit for the tropics, was penetrated by the keen air. The rarefied atmosphere soon began to oppress our breathing, and I found that Evan's boots were so large that I had no foothold. Fortunately, before the real difficulty of the ascent began, we found, under a rock, a pair of small overshoes, probably left by the Hayden exploring expedition, which just lasted for the day. As we were leaping from rock to rock, Jim said, I was thinking in the night about your travelling alone, and wondering where you carried your derringer, for I could see no signs of it. On my telling him that I travelled unarmed, he could hardly believe it, and adjured me to get a revolver at once. On arriving at the notch, a literal gate of rock, we found ourselves absolutely on the knife-like ridge or backbone of Long's Peak, only a few feet wide, covered with colossal boulders and fragments, and on the other side shelving in one precipitous snow-patched sweep of three thousand feet to a picturesque hollow, containing a lake of pure green water. Other lakes, hidden among dense pine woods, were farther off, while close above us rose the peak, which, for about five hundred feet, is a smooth, gaunt, inaccessible-looking pile of granite. Passing through the notch, we looked along the nearly inaccessible side of the peak, composed of boulders and debris of all shapes and sizes, through which appeared broad, smooth ribs of reddish-colored granite, looking as if they upheld the towering rock-mass above. I usually dislike bird's-eye and panoramic views, but though from a mountain, this was not one. Serrated ridges, not much lower than that on which we stood, rose, one beyond another, far as that pure atmosphere could carry the vision, broken into awful chasms deep with ice and snow, rising into pinnacles piercing the heavenly blue with their cold, barren gray, on, on forever, till the most distant range upbore unsullied snow alone. There were fair lakes mirroring the dark pine woods, canyons dark and blue-black with unbroken expanses of pines, snow-slashed pinnacles, wintry heights frowning upon lovely parks, watered and wooded, lying in the lap of summer. North Park, floating off into the blue distance, Middle Park, closed till another season, the sunny slopes of Estes Park, and winding down among the mountains the snowy ridge of the Divide, 
whose bright waters seek both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. There, far below, links of diamonds showed where the Grand River takes its rise to seek the mysterious Colorado, with its still unsolved enigma, and lose itself in the waters of the Pacific, and nearer the snow-borne Thompson burst forth from the ice to begin its journey to the Gulf of Mexico. Nature, rioting in her grandest mood, exclaimed with voices of grandeur, solitude, sublimity, beauty, and infinity, Lord, what is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or, the son of man, that thou visitest him? Never to be forgotten glories they were, burnt in upon my memory, by six succeeding hours of terror. End of Letter 7, Part 1